What a blessing it is together as the body of Christ around the Word, sharing life, praying, giving, celebrating, uh, and uh, excited to open the Word. If you got your Bibles, we are in Acts chapter 4 as we are continuing to walk through this incredible book of the Bible. And uh, as we go, as you're turning there, or maybe turning on your screen there, um, I want to take a quick poll this morning. And uh, the question is this, how many of you in the room and online, if you're listening, uh, um, we will see you virtually, all right? How many of you love roller coasters? You, you love them. You love them. All right. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I can relate. How many of you think the people who just raised their hands are completely nuts? All right. Where are you guys? Okay. All right. So, so, so it's a, it's, there's a little division around this topic. Well, so about, well, I was about 12, 13 years old. I went on a youth trip up to Cincinnati, Ohio, to Kings Island Amusement Park. And uh, it's, it's a big one. It's got, they got tons of coasters. And um, I remember, like, peer pressure is real, okay? It is very real. And, I, and I, I really sensed it on that particular day because I was terrified of roller coasters, but I had a decision to make because we got there and everybody's kind of forming their groups and we're going to go out the park. And so there are the coaster rider group, which the majority of, of my buddies were a part of, and then there was the non-coaster riding group. And I had a dilemma. I had a war in my heart. And, and in that moment, I decided to, to just kind of like, all right, here it goes. I can't show weakness. I can't show weakness. And so I went with the coaster rider group. And I was terrified the whole day, but, but I tried not to let it on. Uh, but one ride in particular we rode that day was called the Vortex. All right, now who, who names these things, first of all? Uh, I got a great name, the Vortex. Let's scare people uh, before they ever get on. So it's like an eight-loop coaster. And I'll never forget getting on that coaster and I'm, I'm seated beside one of our adult leaders, and his name, I kid you not, was Lucky. That was his name, Lucky. And, and so we're on the click, 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 click part, and on the click, 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 click part, my harness goes, whoosh. yes. And, and in an instant, and in, in reflex, Lucky, with his tree trunk arms, he was a, a firefighter, reaches down, pulls the harness up against me. I lean into him and hold his arm. I think that's what I, I grab a hold of. And we held each other for the whole ride. And, and, and it was when we came to the click, 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 the end click, 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 that, that I realized that the harness engaged again. And, and so there's a lesson in all of that. Number one is... Check the harness very closely before you go. But the, the thing is this, is, is the confidence in which you are going to ride the coaster is in direct proportion to how fastened you are to it, okay? And, and, and how bound you are to it. And as we talk about um, Peter and John and this incredible miracle that took place there at the Temple Mount and then the, the events that would follow... What we see is a confidence like no other. Like they have an unshakable, unbreakable confidence in the Lord. And I am convinced, and we'll see it through the text, but I am convinced that it was because 
they were bound to and fastened to the gospel of Jesus. The good news of Jesus. Bold faith is bound up in the gospel of Christ. And they, they, they kept the, the gospel. The gospel wasn't just this, this news that was for other people. It was, it was the news for the world. And that even as, even as we uh, follow Christ as believers, we need to be careful that, that, that we are reminded that the gospel isn't just our response to God's grace and love for us on the cross, but it is the daily reminder and being bound to the good news of Jesus that allows us oftentimes to even put one foot in front of the next. And so just a little context before we jump into chapter 4, verse 1 is Peter and John are on their way to the temple. This is what they did day by day. They would go and they would worship King Jesus at the temple. And as they go, they run across a lame man. He was lame since birth. Uh, we know because of Acts 4 that he was at least 40 years old. And so his entire life since birth, he, his legs were lifeless. The Bible says that, that, that others would bring him to the gate called beautiful, and they would sit him there. And his existence was sitting at the gate called beautiful and begging for money. Peter and John are on their way to temple. They're on their way to worship. And instead of going to the other side of the street or trying not to make eye contact, Peter says, look at me. And in a bold act of faith, Peter, in faith, says, silver and gold I don't have, but what I give, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took a hold of him and stood him up. And can you imagine? This brother was praising the Lord. The Bible says he was leaping. And they go into the temple mount. The Bible says that he clung to Peter and John. And is there in that temple, can you imagine everybody seeing this is the guy. Isn't that the guy that every single day we come is sitting by the gate? And all this great multitude comes around them. And Peter seeing what's going on, sensitive to what's going on, boldly, courageously shares the good news of Jesus. He preaches the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. And it's in this setting that there are those on the Temple Mount that do not like what is happening? And so let's look at chapter 4, verse 1. And, and Peter has just preached the gospel and everybody sees what's going on. The Bible says in Acts chapter 4, verse 1, it says, And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, we're going to see more and more the Sadducees referenced. They're, they are Jews. They are a sect of Judaism. So you have Pharisees. You have Sadducees. They're Jewish. That is their commitment. That is their faith. That's what they're holding to. But Sadducees were kind of like the, the uh, aristocratic level uh, of life in, in Jewish culture. They were actually in charge of everything that happened on the Temple Mount. Uh, they were very politically charged in their leadership. 
Um, Israel there in Jerusalem was under Roman rule. And so ultimately what Rome said went. And so Rome would actually kind of impose their will on what's going on. But they would actually kind of, uh, you know, high priest now. You're not a high priest anymore. You're going to be the high priest. And they would kind of work things out. And, and the Sadducees, they were... Uh, they were uh, they didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And so, so they're obviously going to be confronted with a major problem right before their eyes. But it's, but it's been said that that is why they are sad you see. They are sad you see. This is, this is because of, of their lack of hope. And so, so there's a problem going on on the Temple Mount. And in verse 3, the Bible says that they arrested them. They put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came about 5,000. So if we back up Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost, Peter is preaching. He preaches the gospel, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. He is the Messiah. He's mankind's only hope for salvation. And, and, and he gives an invitation. And 3,000 people on that day repented of their sin and placed their faith in Christ. We had the blessing to celebrate baptism just a moment ago. The Bible says that in Acts 2, there were 3,000 people who accepted Christ and were baptized. And the Bible goes on to say towards the end of Acts chapter 2 that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And now we see in Acts 4, 5,000 more have come to place their faith and trust in Christ the Lord. And so in verse 5 it says, On the next day their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Now I read this, and, and, and when you start seeing the names that are there, Annas and Caiaphas, it's almost like a chilling kind of scene. Because if you'll just, if you'll remember weeks earlier, in the Passion Week of Christ, on the night of the betrayal of Jesus, there in the Garden of Gethsemane, they took Christ to Annas. Now here's what's important to remember. Annas is not the acting high priest. He was, but he was deposed. He was the high priest there from about AD 6 to AD 15. And he was deposed. And now Caiaphas, which is the son-in-law of Annas, is the high priest. But Annas is like the godfather. Like he, he's, he's behind the scenes. He has all kinds of power and he's still wielding his power. This is a big clue on why when, they, when Christ was betrayed and he was arrested, this is why they took him to Annas. Because he is, he is the man with the power. And then Annas sent him over to Caiaphas. And there were a couple trials on that Thursday night, both which were completely illegal. And here's what's so chilling, is that this is the very setting that just weeks before Jesus Christ was before these same people, the Sanhedrin, which was a group of 70 high priests. They were like the Jewish Supreme Court. 
And then you got the high priest there, Annas and Caiaphas. And so it would have been just a few weeks earlier that Christ would have been looking eye to eye at this same group. And now Peter and John are there in this same group. Chuck Swindoll, I love Chuck Swindoll. He says this, he says, Peter and John in this setting, he said they, it would be like appearing before a joint session of Congress and the Mafia. So, so this, is the, this is the feel that's happening right now. The Old Testament commanded that when a miracle happened, that they needed to ask by what name or what power it was done. And so if it was any, any person or any, uh, anything other than God, then they were, they were dealt with. Because that means they are a false prophet. They're a false teacher. And so they would be eliminated. They would be um, kicked out of the picture, if you will. And the Bible says in verse 8, it says this. It says, and then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. And I love this. Because this is a very different Peter than just a few weeks before. That it was uh, on the night of the betrayal. That Peter fulfilled the words of Christ there in that upper room. That he denied him not once, not twice, but three times. Where was Peter? He was in the courtyard of Caiaphas' house while Christ is under trial. Not only that, but, but, but Peter was the one that says that on the day of the resurrection. That they gathered in the upper room because they feared the Jews. So the day of the crucifixion, they're thinking, they did that to Christ, they're going to do that to me. And so they go in that upper room and they lock down. And then Christ appeared to them. Incredible. But, but this is a way different picture of Peter. Like Peter is, is wrestling with fear and, 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 and working through all of that. But yet here he is in the Sanhedrin with Annas and Caiaphas and he is bold. And the difference is he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus told them in Acts 1, right before he ascended, he said, in not many days from now, I'm going to pour my spirit out on you. Acts 1.8, when my spirit comes upon you, you will have power, you'll receive power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And what we see here is Peter filled with the spirit to be a witness. The Bible goes on to say in verse 8, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said to them, rulers of the people and elders. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. And I don't know if any of you fan, are fans of boxing or MMA or anything like that, but, but Peter is landing punches. He is landing virtual truth, and, and verbal truth. And as he is sharing this truth, those that are listening are wrestling because what Sadducees have rejected Christ, they don't believe in the resurrection and they don't believe in miracles. Well, just week before, Christ was in their midst. Matthew 28 tells us that on the day of the resurrection, that the, the guards, the Roman guards there, went to the chief priest. And not only that, they, the chief priest then gathered with the elders, the Sanhedrin, and they come up with a plan. Bible says, Matthew 28, verse 11, they, they say, we're going to pay them off. 
And they take money and they give it and they tell them, tell everybody you see that the disciples stole the body at night. So here's this group that's gathered. They have rejected Jesus. They know the tomb is empty. They were the ones who plotted the plan to spread the lie that the disciples got the body and a man who had been lame for 40 years is right in front of them. (laughs) They are having a problem here. But the problem isn't that they couldn't believe. The problem is they wouldn't believe. They refused to believe. Their minds were so soaked in their self-serving purposes. They were politically charged. They're power hungry. Their desires blinded them to what God was doing. But you can argue all day on all kinds of stuff. But you cannot argue with a changed life. Amen? Uh, you can't argue with a changed life. You can't go to somebody who once was blind and now can see and say, no, you can't see. And you can't go to this brother who had been lame for 40 years of his life and say, no, I'm sorry, you, you, you can't walk. No, you're, you're standing. And I just wonder how many in here can testify that because of the grace of God and his salvation, that he is offered us and poured out on us that we are changed people. That's what He does. He changes us from the inside out. And a mighty work is happening in their midst. So in verse 11, this Jesus, He says, is the stone that was rejected by you and the builders which has become the cornerstone. There's so much there, but it's a messianic psalm. Psalm 118. There are psalms in the in the. Old Testament that speak of the Messiah. This is one of those. This would have rang in their ears. They're hearing this. Verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men. By which we must be saved. I mentioned they were greatly annoyed. They were pained. Because the gospel can be offensive. It can be offensive. How can it be offensive? It can be offensive when your entire world is wrapped up in following rules rather than a relationship with Jesus. To hear that Christ has made the way for us and offers His grace and forgiveness and gifts us His righteousness, that that can be offensive. It can be offensive because in the gospel it teaches us that inherently uh, there there are no good people. I mean, I don't, you know, that can be offensive, but the, the... It's not that we can't do good things, but it's just that we're all sinners. And we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And our sin separates us from God. And so the gospel teaches us that there is only one name. And it's the name of Jesus. That if you're banking on your good works to outweigh your bad works when it's all said and done, there is no hope in that. The hope is in Christ alone, as we sang just a few Moments ago, Jesus told them, he said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the father except through me. Verse 13. I love this verse. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Uneducated, not in the sense that they're that they're not smart. Uneducated in the sense that these guys had no rabbinic training other than following Christ. That, that as they saw them, they were like, these are common people. These are everyday people. And that not only that, but they could not deny that they had been with Jesus. 
I love that. Have you ever come across people? You know they love the Lord. They love people. And you just, you just, it's like the aroma of Christ that, that Paul talks about. They just have this aroma. And, and what can happen is, it's because if you can drill it down, it's because they've been with Jesus. They've spent time communing with the Father. They've spent time in His Word. They've spent time in prayer. And so, it's been said that it's possible to know the Word and not know the God of the Word. And so we see that, that they had been with Jesus. Verse 14 says, But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Isn't it interesting that what they didn't say was, you can't talk about love anymore. You can't talk about serving anymore. You can't talk about giving anymore. They said you can't talk about Jesus anymore. That Jesus is the point of contention. Who is Jesus? Is what separates true belief, Christianity from all others. Because all kinds of folks have all kinds of opinions of who Jesus is. But the God of the word has told us who he is. Jesus Christ is God the Son. He's God in the flesh. So, verse 14, But seeing the man was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it, but in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them not to speak no more to anyone in this name. And so they called them, charged them, don't speak, not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter answered them, verse 19, Peter answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And if you think about that, what is the definition of a witness? It's someone who testifies to what they have seen and what they have heard. And that this is exactly what the Holy Spirit has empowered them to be able to share. They are expecting, yes, sir. They're expecting, yes, sir. I mean, you're, you're the ruler. I mean, how easy would it have been for them to want to take the easy way out? How, how much would they have wanted to, to take the path of least resistance? That how, how badly must they have just wanted to kind of take the route that, that is, that, that, that is uh, you know, that, that they can just kind of like, okay, if I just agree with what's going on here. But yet, we see that for them, their conviction was in the person of Christ. And they could not deny that. Peter would later write, 1 Peter 2, he said, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors. Paul says in Romans 13, Let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. 
Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. He says, First of all, then I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Isn't it, isn't it interesting the context of of wanting all people is in praying for those who are in leadership, those who are in governing authorities. And so, so we pray and we intercede and we serve, but, but yet for them, they will not deny who Christ is. They will stand for Jesus. They make this stand, verse 21, And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened, for the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So their faith was all tied to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This gospel that not only were they preaching to those apart from Christ, but I have a feeling they're preaching it to themselves every day. The good news of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus. But here also I want to see as we look at kind of the, these last few verses is that we see that bold faith is always connected to bold prayer. Faith, bold faith is always connected to bold prayer. And what we see are three specific ways to pray. And I love this. Let's look at what it says. Verse 23, it says, When they were released, they went to their friends, and they reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Their prayer was rooted in the glory of God. Their, their starting point, their jumping off point for prayer was not jumping straight to here's what I need or here's what's broken I need you to fix. It was straight into glory. It was straight into sovereign Lord. That word there for Lord is mentioned only five times in the New Testament. It means absolute ruler. And so as they are praying sovereign Lord, they are praying being reminded of the sovereign ruler. That it's because he's the sovereign ruler that they can have confidence in God no matter what may come. Sovereign Lord who made the maker of heaven. Think of everything in the heavens. He made it. He made the earth. Think of everything in the earth. He made it. Think of the seas. He made everything in it. And yet this is their launching point for prayer. It's the glory of God. But also it, their prayer was rooted in the word of God. Earlier, just a few minutes ago, Pastor Charlie prayed the word over our time this morning. That sometimes when you don't know how to pray or what to pray, pray the word. Listen to what they do. Verse 25 they jump right into who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And he's quoting Psalm chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, another messianic psalm from the Old Testament. That this was all about Describing the victory of Christ, the anointed one, over the conspiracy of the nations. It goes on to say in verse 27, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, 
both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Their prayer was rooted in the glory of God. Their prayer was rooted in the word of God. And, and we see here that the word, their prayer was rooted in the mission of God. Look at the verses 29 through 31. And now, Lord, based on your glory and based on your word, now I pray for the mission that you've entrusted to us. Now, Lord, look upon their threats. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, that while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. How? Because their faith, their life was bound up in the gospel. And there are a couple or practical applications that we see and it may land on your heart a unique way. But the key is, is that the word always demands a response. I was thinking back to D-Now a couple weeks ago. The, the speaker there, he would, he would land every sermon with, anytime the word is open, there's always a response. And so what is the response? And, and it could look a lot of different ways for you. But, but it could be that God help us never to forget the gospel. That, that it's not uh, J.D. Greer. He, he's a pastor in North Carolina and is the, the president of our denomination, the Southern Baptist denomination. And, uh, and so he wrote a book called Gospel a few weeks ago. But I love his, his kind of illustration. And I think it helps because he says, often we as believers think of the gospel as the diving board. Like you kind of share the gospel and it kind of launches you out and whatever. But what he says is actually the pool is the gospel. Like we live in the gospel. We live in the gospel. Help us to never forget. He says this gospel prayer. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's uh, challenging and encouraging. But listen to this gospel prayer. God put it on his heart years ago. And he still prays it every day. But it says this. Is that in Christ. Here's the gospel. In Christ there is nothing I could do. To make you love me more. And nothing I've done that would make you God love me less. That is good news. Romans 8.1, one, one of my favorite verses. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's nothing that I could do to make you love me more. There's nothing that I have done that would make you love me less. He says, your presence and approval. God, your presence, your approval are all I need for everlasting joy. Think about all the things and the ways we seek for joy. We seek for happiness. We seek for satisfaction. We seek to fill whatever need it is we think we have. But, but what the gospel reminds us is, is all we need for joy is Him. All we need is Him, His presence and His approval. He goes on to say that as you, God, have been to me, so I will be to others. That is gospel living. As you were to me, I will be to others. And then he says, as I pray, I will measure your compassion by the cross and your power by the resurrection. God, help us never to get over the gospel. Their lives were bound up in the gospel. How were they so bold? How were they so courageous? They were, no doubt, I believe, not only preaching the gospel to the world, but they were preaching it to themselves. <laughs> But not only that we would not get over the gospel, that, but last week there was a challenge in our prayer life of 
being sensitive to God being at work around us and having the boldness and courage by the Holy Spirit to share Jesus. And so I would just even share one more practical encouragement is that what if for, you know, however you feel led, but what if your prayer began with Acts 4.24? That our opening prayer is Sovereign Lord, Maker of heaven and earth and the seas and everything in it. And then pray. Because what it does is we reminds us who it is we're praying to and who it is that we are in the presence of. It changes things. Even this week, I, my, my bride had a doctor appointment. And so I was living in this text the, this week, you know, and praying over it and, and preparing things like that. But just we circled around her and said, let's pray. And, and that was how we started. We started. We start by saying, Sovereign Lord. You're the absolute ruler. You made all the heavens. You made all the earth. You made the seas. Everything in it. So I have confidence in you. And so now what I'm praying I know is not too big or too small for you. And you trust him. You trust him. You trust him. And so God help us to never get over the gospel. Help us to pray Acts 4.24. A third challenge for us as believers would be that we would always pray for the persecuted church. That we'd never lose sight. That, that what we're going to see happen in Acts, Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching. It was almost like the seedlings of persecution because they mocked them. They said they were drunk. They're making fun of them. The seedlings begin. That's Acts 2. By Acts 4, they're now being detained and they're being arrested. As we follow through... The wave of persecution is just going to get larger and heavier and weightier. Not far from now, we will see the first martyr. Not far from now, we will see that there will be more imprisonments. Not only that, we will begin to see more flogging and beatings all for the gospel. This is what they're, they're, they're going out and they're enduring this because they have seen and they have heard. And they know the grace of God in their lives in a powerful way. Just alone. And this year, Open Doors is a great resource. Talks, it's a, for the persecuted church. But it says this, in this past year, 4,761 Christians were martyred for their faith. So that was this past year. 4,488 churches and other Christian buildings were attacked. 4,277 believers were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. That's happening right now. And, and by God's grace, we, we gather in freedom, we gather to worship, and yet let us not forget our brothers and sisters. And so even this prayer, Acts 4.24 and through it, teaches how we can pray for the persecuted church. To continue to pray for boldness. As they continue to testify to what they've seen and what they have heard. And the last thing I would share is, is that perhaps you're here and you're in the room this morning. Or you're listening in online. And just as God, in God's grace and God's care that the gospel came to that lame man. It came to the multitudes in Jerusalem. It came to the multitudes on those on the Temple Mount. That the gospel has come to you today. And it's the good news. And it's the good news that for God so loved the world. That he gave his one and only son. 
that whosoever believes in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. It's the good news that God so loved you that He came, clothed in flesh, dwelt among us, lived a life that no person could ever live. Remember, it's not about good and bad and hoping the good outweighs at the end. There's no other name under heaven given among men by where we must be saved. It's the name of Jesus. And so, so Jesus came. He lived the life we could never live. He was crucified on a Roman cross to pay the penalty for our sin. That He bore our sin and He bore our shame and He shed His blood for the forgiveness of our sin. They placed Him in a tomb and He rose from the dead. And the Bible says, Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And so this gospel has come to you. And this gospel has come to you if you're listening in online. This is the truth of God's word for you. There is no other way. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through me. This is God's love for you. He did for us what we could never, ever do. So much of religion is, is got this perspective almost of like climbing the mountain. God's at the top of the mountain. And as long as you work hard and you make it to the top of the mountain, then you, you're good. You, you, you spend eternity with God. Or you, no, listen, the God who made the mountain came down to us because there was no way for us to work or to earn or to be good enough. That He it's done. It's finished. That's what he said on the cross. It's finished. The work of salvation is finished. But you must accept it. You have to respond. And so I'm going to pray over us. And anytime the word is opened, it demands a response. So I don't know how the word lands on your heart today, but I'm going to pray for us. And, um, and as, we, as we, maybe for you it's sing, maybe it's for you to be Still, maybe it's to pray there. Maybe it's to come pray at the altar. Maybe if you want prayer over from one of our pastors, we'd love to pray over you. But let's just be sensitive to the Lord's Spirit and rejoice in the gospel and be encouraged even today for the courage and boldness that is found through a relationship with Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You today for Your grace that God... Uh, I know the, the, the kind of the joke is we lost that hour of sleep, and, uh, and we did. But we've also been gifted another day. And, uh, and God, uh, you have all kinds of purpose in this day. All kinds of purpose. And Father, it could be that today your purpose is for believers to respond to your grace in a way of just praising you, worshiping you. Uh, being thankful for the gospel, not getting over the gospel, being bound by the gospel. That it's acknowledging and being reminded of who it is we serve, who it is we pray to, the sovereign Lord, the maker of heaven, the maker of earth, the maker of the seas, and everything in it. God, we pray for our brothers and sisters who are in the darkest corners of the globe, under threat of losing their life for the gospel. God, continue to give them courage and boldness 
to continue to speak of what they have seen and what they have heard. And Father, I pray for anyone who may be here who does not have a relationship with you, that today would be the day of salvation. God, they would repent of their sin and place their faith and trust in you and you alone for salvation. God, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.